Early in the morning on May 2nd, 1967, a group of 30 black people piled into cars in Oakland, California, and struck out on the highway, headed for the state capitol in Sacramento. The group was made up of 24 men and 6 women. Among them were members of the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense, other community residents, and the family members of Denzel Dowell, a young black man who had been shot and killed by police officers about a month earlier. The trunks of the cars were filled with pistols, shotguns, and semi-automatic weapons. Everyone was nervous, but the 80-mile drive from Oakland to Sacramento gave them plenty of time to think and to remember why they were going to the Capitol, because they did not want what happened to Denzel Dowell to happen to anyone else. Denzel was a black teen accused of robbing a local liquor store. Police officers shot him multiple times, although he was unarmed and possibly in the act of surrendering. Then they left him to die without even calling an ambulance. Your shelf for mine Talking sophisticated topics all the time Your shelf for mine Kick back, relax, crack a book on wine at your shelf Hello, and welcome to Your Shelf. Or mine. Or mine. I'm Becky Standle, Youth Services Librarian at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Jacob Collins, Library Technician at the Longview Public Library. And I'm Austin Brigden, Circulation Specialist at the Longview Public Library. Welcome to our final episode of our 2023 Our Shelf Challenge that we are recording here in our year 2024. We're in the future. January 25th, to be exact. <laughs> and today we're here to talk about our December author, Keikla Magoon. We didn't want to give her any short shrift, so we've extended our time a little bit. Yeah. Do we want to go around like we often do and talk about our background or lack thereof with the author? Sure. I'll go first. I believe that the first Keikla Magoon book that I ever read was How It Went Down, which I read the year it was published. It got a lot of buzz and attention because it was very topical and also I think just because it was so well done. And then I have read The Rock and the River and I remember that book really well. It really stuck with me. I've read the book X. I read that with a book club I used to run, which is like a novel about the youth of Malcolm X that she co-wrote with one of his daughters. And then I have read Revolution in Our Time and was honored to be on the committee that awarded that a Prince honor in 2022. (laughs) And then new for this episode, I read her latest young adult novel, which is called The Minus One Club. I think that's all of them. Um, I had no background with it. Is it uh, Kekla or Kekla? Kekla Magoon? I I always say Kekla, but it might be Kekla. Kekla Magoon? Yeah, your background is me talking about it all. Well, that's what I was going to say. I got Revolutionary Time by Osmosis when you were reading it for The Prince because you could tell it was a good nonfiction book because every five minutes or so, it'd be like, hey, listen to this (laughs) and read a piece of it. So it was nice to have an occasion to read it. I read that, and then I read Kekla Magoon's first novel, The Rock and the River. Um, I was going to get to other stuff like usual, and I didn't, but these two ended up being like a really good pairing. Okay. And I had a little bit of experience with Kekla Magoon just from hearing Becky talk about Revolution in Our Time as part of her Time on the Prince. And I had seen a couple of her middle grade novels around the library as well, including The Season of Sticks Malone or The Summer of Sticks Malone didn't read that one but the cover stuck out to me yeah i have wanted to read that season of six malone for a while as well but i I haven't still and in preparation for the podcast i read her latest middle grade novel which is called chester keen cracks the code and then i also read how it went down Mm. and i read the first couple of chapters of revolution in our time but i didn't quite finish it i actually it turns out haven't read 
any of her like real middle grade. I feel like the rock in the river walks that middle school line where you're like, uh, like it's kind of middle grade, but it's also kind of YA. I could see reading that in middle school. Yeah. Or in like, or in like eighth grade mm-hmm. or something. It's the kind of book where you, it's hard to decide where to put it because if it's like for 10 to 14 year olds. Hmm. Tell me about it. Tell me all about it. So. Go for it. Let's start. Start with The Rock and the River. This was her yeah. first novel, and she's won a number of awards. This is including that Prince Honor. She's also, she won the Margaret A. Edwards Award, which is for, like, contribution to teen literature. I feel like she won that kind of pretty young. So I read this one because when we were talking about what to read, Becky was like, oh, I really liked The Rock mm-hmm. and the River. I think we have it at the library, which we don't currently. But I, I went and tracked down a copy, and it is really, really good. And I feel like I kind of want to talk about it in relation to Revolution in Our Time. That's sort of like the book, I feel like, in the center a little bit. Could you look and see when that was published? At the time, too, this was the first novel for children that was about the Black Panther Party or for young people. Um, It came out in 2010, copyright 2009. So this edition was 2010. And it's about, oh, man, where do you begin? It's about a kid named Sam, Chicago, 1968. And Sam is the younger son of Roland Childs, who's a kind of classic civil rights figure. You know, there's, there's this, there ends up being this division between sort of black power and the sort of very religious-based, you know, civil rights, nonviolent civil rights movement. And he's very much a figure of that movement and, uh, you know, marched with Martin Luther King and his friends with Martin Luther King. And so... The book opens, Sam and his brother, who he calls Sticks, his name is Stephen, are like at yet another demonstration and their dad is talking, you know? And so you kind of see inside the veneer of the civil rights leader, because they're just like, oh my God, we're at another one of these things. When is it going to be over? And they decide to disobey their parents and sneak out of the the demonstration early while their dad's giving a speech. So they start making their way out and they kind of, you know, egg each other on until they decide to do this and then as they're making their way out um, some white supremacists pull up and start beating people at the edge of the crowd and the older brother jumps in because there's like an old woman being beaten and starts throwing punches which is like totally against the dad's code where you don't do anything you know no matter what they do to you so he starts throwing punches and gets pretty badly hurt and so they take off for the hospital with the older brother sort of he gets his head cut and he's bleeding all over the place and they make it down to this hospital and immediately you know have a racist kind of run in with one of the nurses who doesn't want to treat them and, and then another nurse kind of overrules this older nurse but anyway so that kind of sets the scene and sticks is getting interested in the black panthers and like sneaking out and going to their political education classes and getting more and more involved as the early part of the book goes on and their their parents are really against this because they're you know part of that classic civil rights movement and also they're afraid they're going to get killed so it really it follows this family and it's just so good it's like a book that really it's clear and accessible but it and it, and it sort of walks that line between big things are happening you know like history is happening but also it's a really intimate story of this family and this boy who's trying to, at the same time that he's deciding whether or not to, you know, go out with the Black Panthers is trying to decide how to, you know, ask out the girl in his class and stuff like that. And it gets into sort of class differences in the African-American community in Chicago. Their dad's a lawyer. A lot of the Black Panther people are from the projects and sort of not just the, appro- the different approaches towards civil rights, but also all these, these sort of class things. I remember his the older brother being involved in like free breakfast. Yeah, and so it was really interesting to read it right after Revolution in Our Time because it was like, oh, I you know got a primer in all this stuff, the free breakfasts that they were doing in the book. They're working on opening a free health clinic in their neighborhood in Chicago, and things there. You know, we do spoilers on this show, but like, there's some things in this book I won't say, but. You go through the book and things are happening. So like uh, so the Watts riots had happened. They're talking about events that are going on. And then eventually Martin Luther King is killed. And you see sort of the reaction to that in the community. 
and the increasing tension between the dad and the brother as the brother gets more and more involved and everything that happens gets him just more and more involved in the Black Panthers. A kid that they know who's like, you know, one of the most happy-go-lucky, cheerful kids they know early in the book, he's late to get back to his shift at the mechanics shop. He has a job there and he's really excited about it. And he's running, but he's talking over his shoulder, you know, to friends and he, he runs into a cop walking and they beat him almost to death. And then they haul him in and they charge him with a bunch of things, assault and all this stuff. And so there's also this plot line of, like, what are they going to do, you know, about that? What's the response to that happening? And the Black Panthers have a response, and the father has a response, which is a very traditional, you know, do a demonstration outside the courthouse and work through the legal defense and, you know, all that stuff. And so those are the big tensions in the book. Meanwhile, like, the, the main character is trying to figure out who's right, I guess. Who's right and, like, what kind of person he's going to be because yeah. there's all these different people mm -hmm. and it's complicated too because maxi who's you know the love interest it's actually one of the other early incidents in the book is like so they go to this hospital and his brother's bleeding everywhere and the kindly nurse you know takes him away and is working on him and sam decides to go to the gift shop in the hospital and he sees these mittens and he thinks oh these would be perfect for maxi you know that's chicago and it's like winter time and they walk back and forth to school and before he can even catch him the shopkeeper runs out and accuses him of stealing makes him turn out his pockets and in all these points these flashpoints that come up through the book he's always like got all these different people in his head like what do i do do i do what my brother would do do i do what my dad would do and sometimes he walks the middle line you know he buys the mittens he insists on buying the mittens he insists on getting a receipt but anyway, it gets complicated, too, because Maxie and her brother Raheem are in the Black Panthers. And so in the course of seeing her, he, he can't stay away from that movement that his parents want him to stay away from if he wants to be with her. But it's just beautifully done, you know? It's just really beautifully done. Were you talking about the title of the book? Yes, and I was going to do a little research on this because I don't know it as well as I could. So The Rock and the River is like a reference to uh, like a story or a parable about that his brother Styx uses a lot to talk about the different approaches to the civil rights movement. Are you the rock or are you the river? You know, kind of are you passive resistance or are you active? And so he keeps returning to that throughout the book, the rock or the river. But yeah, it was, it was really nice to read Revolution in Our Time and get all this information about this crazy true story and then to kind of be able to read this novel that really brings it emotionally to life and that's the story i have to tell do you have anything to add becky i just remember like this book really stick with me i read a lot of books and sometimes you don't you know it's just like you finish it and you never really think about the book again but it's been a long time since i read this book and i still think about it i feel like it might have been really the book the first time i really learned about the black panthers in like a positive way and like Austin had said when we were talking about it earlier one of the things that he likes about the book is it doesn't deify the leaders of the nonviolent movement it like treats them as just like real human beings with personalities and, and foibles and, flaws, and, yeah. and there's like conflicts between them and not everybody is like getting along all of the time or believe all the same things or they're bored. Like, even the opening scene, yeah. it's like, they're bored. Like, nobody was bored, you know, or making jokes or being sarcastic mm -hmm. or having infighting. I mean, all that stuff that actually happened. Yeah. And I've read, like, a lot of fiction, children and teen fiction, about the civil rights movement. And I think that this book really stands out. And then, you know, Revolution in Our Time was published in, in 2021. And... I mean, I feel like since then, like, three or four more books for teens about the Black Panthers has come out, and I think that's great. But she was really trying to tell the story for a really long time for a young audience, and and it took a long time for people to want to hear it. And I just, I think she does a good job, and I feel like her writing, the way she can capture, like, character voices is so good, and it really kind of puts you puts you right there in the in the time period and the moment you know historical fiction is like looking back right and telling a story from like your present perspective as a writer that happened in the past 
she has a way of doing that where you're reading it and it feels almost a little bit more contemporary i think i don't know it's very vivid yeah yeah and i don't know what her connection is or if she has a connect that made her i Did you know you read the end of the author's note at the end of revolution in our time mm, i thought i did well where she talks about going to the 50th anniversary and all that stuff I don't know what got her started on this story, but obviously she was at it for a long time with their particular desire to tell that story. Um, when we called her to tell her about the Prince Honor, which is one of the coolest things like ever going to do as a librarian, it's like be on a call to an author when you tell them that they've won an award. She talked about being picky about who published the book and really kind of taking her time to make sure that she'd get a publisher who would do what she wanted with it because it's very beautifully designed. Um, like Campbell Wick did a nice job. It's very nice. So what's their last name in this book? Childs. Okay. When you kept calling Sticks, I was like, I wonder if that's related to the other Sticks book that she wrote. But maybe not. Uh, I, well, I don't know. <laughs> Stephen Childs is the guy, kid's name, but they call him Sticks. And, you know, they're having sort of their nor normal, like, sort of brother tensions, but also playing out all these bigger, bigger forces. It was like a stay up and read it because you want to know what happens kind of a book, too. I mean. I will tell you there's a follow-up to The Rock and the Roofer that I have not read. What? And it's um, Max Maxis is the, is the character. What? Yeah. It's called Fire in the Streets. Okay. All right. So what I, I what do you want to talk about now? I mean, do you want to? Do you want to talk about more about revolution in our time? Should we talk about that now in, like? Sure. Okay. Well, why don't you talk about Revolutionary sure. Time? Sure. So Revolutionary Time is nonfiction. Its subtitle is The Black Panther Party's Promise to the People. And it is, I don't really have a lot of room. I want to open the book in front of me. This really lovely design book with lots of photos and kind of like a black and white and turquoise. It's very pretty. Look, Beautiful, beautiful. And she starts... She starts giving a lot of context of, like, you know, the nonviolent civil rights movement that I think people are fair, fairly well educated about generally in, like, our public school system, but making sure that the reader has, like, the full context for the, the rise of the Black Panther Party. And then just, like, gets into how it started and who founded it. It was slower for me in that beginning yeah. part, like, the preamble. Not because it wasn't ro well written or anything, mm -hmm. but I think because it was more familiar. But then when she really and it's and broad, she's really broad, you know, about about slavery, the Civil War, mm -hmm. Jim Crow, you know, and pretty quick. So I was kind of like, OK, OK. But when the, when she gets into the Black Panthers and the real details, I got really fascinated. So I haven't reread this book recently, so it's not like <laughs> super fresh in my mind. So I feel like you could go ahead and like you could talk about like what stuck out the most to you she yeah. really focuses a lot on like characters yeah i had some familiarity with black panther party but she just really goes in deep and um, you know you have a vague sense of something and that's kind of what she's out to dispel because i think people had a vague sense of the black panther party as just being violent violent or just real macho mm -hmm. also when people think of the Black Panther Party, and there was plenty of that, I think, plenty of machismo and stuff, and I think it was, and she alludes to that, sometimes tough for women in the movement, like there wasn't all of these movements at that time, but people think of the the guys with the guns and the leather jackets, but don't necessarily think about like free breakfast programs, medical clinics, you know, there's a great picture in there of a guy, any full, you know, big black guy in his leather jacket and a beret and everything, like walking with this little old lady in the grocery store down like the meat aisle and helping her because that was one of the services that one of the chapters provided was like escorts for black seniors because uh, a lot of them didn't have bank accounts. So they'd cash their social security check and then get robbed, you know, or mugged in, you know, anywhere along the process of trying to go about their business. And so these guys would escort them and help them. Just a huge amount. They called those their survival programs. Mm -hmm. So the Black Panther Party was started in Oakland, California, 1968, seven, seven. I think, um, by Huey Newton, a guy named Huey Newton and a guy named Bobby Seale. And those are two guys who, you know, are, lots of people were in the movement, but they were kind of big figures. 
and one of their first things was policing the police and Huey Newton and Bobby Seale were real really smart about how they how they did things and they studied California law like crazy because they knew they would have to just be absolutely correct they had no margin of error and so they but they believed in carrying guns fully registered understood all the gun laws and the book kind of opens with that that first confrontation where they start arming themselves and they start policing the police just kind of like observing and intervening and then the california legislature puts forward the mulford act to restrict it's a, a gun control bill um, Ronald Reagan as governor, very supportive. Lots of Republicans very supportive, tellingly when black people were the ones with the guns. And so they went to protest at the state house in Sacramento peacefully, but with their guns. <laughs> and then they go in and somebody, they think it might have been intentional. They're like asking directions to the gallery to watch the proceedings and they give them the wrong directions. And they, they end up going out on the floor with all the legislators and then, you know, are charged with like, trying to some people think was a setup but anyway so there was that component but as they went on they got more and more into what they called survival programs for the communities so free breakfast the health clinics there were just tons of them education daycares but they also were really really harassed by the police and by eventually the fbi that kind of ramps up over time but always by the police and there's tragedies that happen, and one of them is one that happens in this book. There was a young man, Bobby Hutton, who was, uh, I think... The, the book he's talking about is The Rock and the River. The Rock and the River is dramatized in here. Bobby Hutton is killed. He's 16. I think he's the first person to join after Bobby... No. After Bobby Seale and Huey Newton. Mm -hmm. And the police do a raid, and he and another guy surrender... There may have been some shooting back and forth. I don't remember. But he surrenders, and the cops push him, and he stumbles, and they say he was fleeing arrest, and they shoot him a bunch of times, kill him. And that really galvanizes the Black Panther Party. They have like a 10-point plan, which has sort of what they want, things like all black men should be released from prison because they haven't had a fair trial. Do you remember? There's, other, there's a bunch of them. There's like their tenants. They want, you know education they're very inspired by malcolm x too who's not involved with them at all but is like a precursor um, and they quote him a lot and they start putting out a newspaper that's really influential it's an amazing and the story happens over a relatively short amount of time they I, wanted like guaranteed income like guaranteed, guaranteed employment income. they wanted reparations and it changed over time they also had an idea at one point they wanted i think the word is a plebiscite which is like a procedure by which the, the idea was that black people, it would be like a forum of the black population to vote on what the United States policy toward black people should be. It's called a plebiscite. And they wanted the UN to come in and moderate it because they had done that in some other countries where there were, were minorities that were being mistreated. I don't know. I'm just rambling. There's so many good stories in there, though. And I think she also wants to, in her book, like spotlight a lot of the women who are involved in the movement because they're often like a little overshadowed when people are doing like a more cursory overview of the history of the party. And it's interesting. I think she might have talked about this like a little in like the afterward or the author's note or whatever about access to like FBI records and stuff coming out as she's been working on this book for a long time. She worked on this book for a long time and kind of like learning about new things like people had suspected for a long time i forget there was that big shooting yeah in baltimore i think it was baltimore um and people had suspected that the fbi had like a mole in but they didn't know for sure for a long time not just moles but like what they she called agent provocateurs right. like people to go in and mess with stuff yeah and they were sending fake mail between different groups mm -hmm. and different people to try to like cause fights cause like infighting this was them. uh i think yeah. it was like count pro the program counterintelligence mm -hmm. programs this is these are the people people might know as the ones who were monitoring martin luther king mm -hmm. recording sex tapes of him sending him a letter uh, suggesting that he kill himself um, this is that program that was just devoted to trying to root out any dissident groups in the united states 
not just the Black Panthers. Right. But they did this to so many groups. And But then, of course, it was all a lot of it they just suspected. Mm -hmm. And they talk about how painful it was because this period is like 66 to, I think, sort of the last gasp of, of anything that's like officially Black Panthers. It's like 1982. And then people don't find out some of what isn't true in their relationships with other people. You know, you're talking about probably beefs between people or not mm -hmm. speaking to people. And then finding out decades later that it was all... I mean, just crazy, crazy yeah. painful, I'm but sure. But they have, like, agents in who would, yeah, push for them to be more violent yes. or more confrontational in certain situations that would lead to people being killed. Yes. It's just awful. It's awful how they were treated, and I feel like it's awful also how history has treated them, and it's it's good to see that narrative changing, changing and people being more, yeah. like, educated. Especially because I feel like the Black Panther Party was all about, like, educating people. They were very forward-thinking, and they had a lot of ideas now that, as the culture changes, people are, like, mm -hmm. think are good ideas. Yeah, <laughs> like, you, everyone should know what their legal rights are and what mm -hmm. government officials can or cannot tell you to do or ask you to do. Um, and a lot of stuff about, you know, just, like, strengthening communities. Yeah. Local communities. Creating, like taking care of you each know, other. And you know, think about people talking about mutual aid mm -hmm. and, and different things like that. They, they were very much. And I mean, she talks about in her after like note. Daycare, after school daycare, care. Yeah. In her after note, she talks about the ways in which she sees it's not continuous exactly with them, but she mm -hmm. sees Black Lives Matter as, you know, learning a lot from them and probably opening up spaces in the culture that allow the Black Panthers to be reevaluated. But yeah, lots of crazy stuff happens too. Some people flee like overseas to keep from just being in prison. There's still Asada Shakur, who I think is Tupac's aunt, still lives in Havana, I think, because she couldn't come back to the United States. I don't know. That was a real rambling. There's just so much. There's it's really so much, but it's so accessible. So I really encourage anybody to read it. And like, again, like it's a like really well formatted nonfiction book. Just a delight to like have on it's really pretty in front of you <laughs> yes. people yeah. let's see um i think like maybe we can move from there and talk about how it went down sorry what? i thought of one more thing okay oh she talks early there were things in there like that i didn't know and i thought i knew a pretty much mm -hmm. a good amount the kerner commission in 1968 which was a commission that lyndon johnson put together to study like why all these riots were happening and they come back with this thing that's like oh my gosh racism is so systemic in our society that like people can't take it anymore you should expect a lot more of this and all this stuff and so they fire everybody on the <laughs> and suppress the findings it's like no 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 that's not what we wanted to hear so anyway that was just a let's talk about how it went down yeah jacob i'm up all right so how it went down is a contemporary novel that was written in 2014, but is still very relevant today. I could have picked it up and thought it was published yesterday. Yeah. And it's about a uh, black boy who's 16 years old named Tariq, who was shot and killed by essentially a, a white man who's a thinks of himself as like a vigilante and, you know, is protecting people or whatever. Um, and the book is told from various perspectives on how they either witnessed the event and their different takes on it or the people that were directly affected by Tariq's death and the fallout that happens afterwards and so it kind of takes place in the in the weeks well when the event happens and then in the in the months following so one of the characters named Brian is sort of stops Tariq who is leaving out of a convenience store and the shopkeepers going after him trying to give him his change back and there's a encounter between Tariq and Brian and from that encounter then the vigilante comes in and ends up shooting and killing Tariq so and there's a lot of other elements that play into it it's very it's complex and there's a lot of different layers and perspectives that all intertwine and it's told very beautifully and each character is very distinct as Becky kind of mentioned earlier she has a way with character voice to make each character stand out and there's this thing at play where the Tariq and his three friends had all made a promise to stay out of a gang called the Kings and two of them end up going into the gang uh, one of them 
he is arrested and is in, currently in prison. Um, another one is just an active member of the gang. And then uh, Tariq and then his other friend, Ty, have a goal of like making it and in, going into college together. And so the story just unfolds with all of these different events. Like there's response from the community about him being an innocent kid who's killed. The guy who does kill him is basically on the run, more or less. Like I think he's found innocent. And then he's just hiding out at this dude's house, his friend's house, who's looking after him. There's a politician who's trying to work his way up in the political field who sort of takes on what happens to Tariq and sort of uses it as a platform to, like, push for both his own political campaign but also for, like, responsibility with, like, the police and accountability. I thought that was a really interesting character, kind of like a black leader who comes in from outside the community and there's, like, people are like, oh, he's just an opportunist. And some people are like, he's actually trying to help us. And it's 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 it, both. Yeah, it's complex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He even admits at one point where he's like, I can't even care about this anymore because it happens so often mm-hmm. that if I did care about it, like it was it's all I could do. Mm-hmm. Like it would tear me apart. So I just have to emotionally distance myself from this and just carry on. Mm-hmm. How many do you remember how many different character voices that book is written in? It's a lot. It's like. 12 maybe That's what I thought like a dozen that was one to me one of the most impressive things about that book and I've ne- never read anything like it where they're so they're totally distinguished you're never reading a section and thinking it's a different person which I think happens a lot in books where there's only two perspectives <laughs> you don't get confused no you don't get confused and and the way that she tells it through all these different character perspectives there's no omniscient narrator so there's no true story you know, that you can tell who's lying and who's not lying. You just have to listen to what they're saying and make that decision yourself as mm-hmm. a reader. Oh. So, so smart. And I'm sad I didn't get to that one because Becky was telling me about it. And I was interested because this book being her first one, this book being The Rock and the River, super straightforward, like mm-hmm. first person, one voice, you know. And so it'd be interesting to read something of hers that's different. Yeah, and it's also just, like, ripped from the headlines. And unfortunately, it's headlines that have, you know, 10 yeah. plus more years. Yeah, keeps keeps headlining. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, yeah, that was the first one I read of her. I was like, who is this? Writing this book is amazing. And I feel like the kind of book, too, that could really, because it's not didactic, it's not like making judgments about any of the characters really and it's telling everyone's side I think could really like change people's minds Mm. about stuff if they took the time to read it yeah yeah one of the things that's interesting in the book is um, it talks a lot about how like the limited opportunities that they have in their in their neighborhood and how it's pretty much the only two paths are either gang violence or like trying to make it out, but it's almost impossible with all of the different factors at play to push them out. And there's one character who he's like a stepdad and he's white collar. He's kind of one of, and he's moved out and he's sort of like ashamed of this neighborhood that he grew up in and kind of is pushing his stepson to stay out of it. But his stepson is like a graffiti artist who ends up painting a mural of Tariq. And it's just, like, the dynamics between the two of them are interesting because there's, like, the element of, like, I don't want to leave because you're just creating more more of a problem by leaving. Right. But then there's, like, I want you to be safe and I want you to have more opportunities. So mm-hmm. there's that complex social dynamic there. Yeah, it's a very good book. and a, a lot to think about. Yeah. And that one's a YA novel? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She seems like she's got, got some range. She writes mm-hmm. some different, um, I mean, we've talked about two YA novels and a YA nonfiction but it sounds like she does middle grade as well. I'll just can briefly touch on X before we kind of switch gears a little. Sure. Um, and this is like a fictionalized biography of Malcolm X, and it's been a number of years since I read it, but it starts with his youth in, in Michigan, and he had to leave Michigan because his mother was, gosh, I remember, is ill, and there was, like, complex issues with the state and social services and stuff. I'm not – I don't really remember 
Anyways, but he moves to New York to live with his sister. And he, you know, is working and gets involved with this girl. And they end up doing some sort of robbery. And they turn on him because he, you know, because it's easy to let make him take the fall for what she's kind of done. And his people had told him to, like, not get involved. But I assume it's with a white woman, young woman. And he it's like, I do what I want. And then he ends up in prison. And it kind of ends there. It ends with him in prison learning about Islam and just starting to think about really making a change. And so it's like a really interesting portrait of somebody's background you don't necessarily hear a ton about and kind of what can lead somebody to having these huge ideas and like becoming like this big influential figure. Mm-hmm. So and it's real well written too and she co-wrote it with a family member, so I think pretty accurate. And it doesn't despite being co-written by one of his daughters. It's not like lionize him too much, I feel like. Which mm. <laughs> you you know, you can wonder like, oh, this family is going to write a book to make him seem just like real good, but it it's realistic. This is a young person making mistakes. And I also read uh, Chester Keen Cracks the Code, and I wanted to talk about that for just a minute. Yeah. But it's a it's a contemporary sort of mystery novel about a kid named Chester whose mom is a single mom his dad kind of packed off and left and as he's sort of trying he he deals with bullies and he's trying to navigate sort of being a preteen and trying to find himself but also very much wishing that his dad is going to come back and he has this fantasy that his dad is actually a secret agent and so he didn't really leave he's really off on like this mission off somewhere else Mm -hmm. and he writes to his dad and he gets responses via email, and he sort of uses that to keep fueling his, like, idea that, like, idolization of his dad. And he ends up meeting this girl who they go off on, like, a scavenger hunt together trying to solve this mystery that's been placed in front of both of them, only to find out that it was their parents who had sort of set this up. Because Chester's mom uh, is dating a man, and he is really into puzzles, and so he sort of created this scavenger hunt and a mystery for them to solve but in the process they actually end up uncovering a real mystery of a robbery that these people are trying to rob like an armored truck and so they kind of get involved in this and it ends up being a much bigger thing than they anticipated Mm -hmm. it wasn't my favorite i wasn't too invested in it but i do remember it it had a lot of different layers and like uh, a lot of things going on but i didn't it didn't really grab me as much as um, how it went down did. Like I was, I was sucked into that. I read it almost all in one sitting. It was so good. Yeah. But the other book that I read, the one I actually read recently for this episode, is called The Minus One Club, and I felt like it was really different than the other books of hers that I've read. I guess mostly because it doesn't, it doesn't deal at all with like black rights, civil rights. It's um, a contemporary story, so it's not historical in any way. But I liked it. So it's about, I'm terrible at remembering characters' names. Oh, right. His name is Kermit. <laughs> He's 15, and the beginning of the book, his older sister has died in a car accident, and she had, I think, just started college, and he and his, his her, their family are pretty religious, grew up Christian, and he is closeted. His sister was the only person who he had ever, t- like, who knew that he was gay. And that's kind of part of his loss. And also feeling that because of his parents' religion and their background, the church that they go to specifically, he couldn't, like, ever tell them. And he's kind of started not going to church anymore and, like, kind of is struggling with that part of identity that had been so important to him and is still important to him, but finding, like, that the, the place where he could express that before, like his church and with his parents, isn't going to work out for him anymore. And also feeling like his sister was the only one who really understood that. But in the beginning of the book, he gets this invitation in his locker to come meet 
I don't know, like in the art room or something after school. And he's been invited to this group called the Minus One Club. And it's like a small group of other students in his high school who have all lost somebody really close to them, like a parent or a sibling. And they are kind of like a support group, but their rule is that they don't talk about the deaths of whoever was close to them. So it's like a group that they can get together when someone's having a bad day and like do something else and not talk about it. The not talking about it ends up kind of being a problem. And in the end, they're like, maybe we should talk about it a little bit. (laughs) But he, in that group, meets a boy and they have like a really quick connection and become friends really quickly and then have a romantic relationship that he was also kind of have to hide and his the boyfriend character his mother had died and he lives with his father and they have money and stuff but his father really is busy all of the time with work and he's very neglected and he's left alone a lot and he drinks and is an alcoholic and that's kind of how he deals with his grief over his mother's death she had died from cancer and Kermit does not drink and that ends up being kind of like a conflict in their relationship where it's like he understands like why his boyfriend is drinking and he's not violent or anything when he does that but he does feel like they can't ever sometimes they can't be too real you know and there's always like an escape that's needed but the other guy says he needs the escape and so the book is doing like all of these different kinds of things where it's dealing with like grief grief over the sibling and also I think a kind of a religious grief it's dealing with his like first romantic relationship and his first sexual relationship and also this complication of the alcoholism and and then there's some like suicidal ideation that happens towards the end and dealing with all of these different friendships and this idea of him having to remain closeted for his own I guess safety and well-being that I feel like that that kind of connection between like LGBTQ kids and like religion and potentially having to stay closeted is something that has not being written about as much in YA as probably it used to but I think something that still really affects a lot of kids and so it was really interesting to get that perspective especially because he's a, a black boy and has that additional identity and it's just like a really nice story just kind of about you know his life so I would recommend it it's kind of it's kind of heavy <laughs> sounds really interesting but yeah and yeah like i said real different than the other stuff of hers that i had read but i really liked it it really sounds like she has the ability to effectively take multi-layered intricate plots and be able to weave them together pretty mm-hmm. seamlessly like yeah. is there's there's a lot going on. it's not just one thing it's yeah. not just one conflict there's multiple things uh-huh. all happening at once uh-huh. yeah and none of the characters are ever just kind of like one thing which is really nice and sometimes hard to do, especially when you're dealing with kind of like side characters and stuff. Her website is out of date. <laughs> it's I really say out of date. But I'm like, wait a second. It's like, this is my middle grade book. There's no book session. called The Season of Sticks Malone. <laughs> but uh, no, it's really out of her uh, Wikipedia, on the other hand. So, yeah, like quite a few young adult, quite a few middle grade, the Robin Hoodlum series. Oh, that's right. And also, like, an interesting assortment of nonfiction. Like she wrote for the um, smaller nonfiction things, like the She yeah. Persisted series mm-hmm. of uh, you know profiles of um, of women in history. Uh, Ruby Bridges. I know she did Ruby Bridges. She did a book about Thurgood Marshall. Yeah, she's done a number of those. Shorter. Pieces. I don't know what you. Yeah. She did like a a picture book about Thurgood Marshall. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And then she's been in a lot of anthologies mm-hmm. for short for short fiction as well. She's really busy and has really big range. Yeah. And I feel like she's done a lot, but I feel like it uh, might be somebody who our listeners might not have yeah. heard of. So I'm excited because, you know, we do a lot of names where people probably have heard of them. But hopefully this will lead somebody to pick up her books, especially if they're doing the challenge. 
So this is the last author. Yeah. For 2023, how long do they have to complete that challenge, Becky? Well, to the end of January. So hopefully we can get this edited and um, posted before the end of January. Should we give them a maybe I'll extend Valentine's it. Day? Do maybe you have until Valentine's Day. I'll get. I'll extend it a little. So bit. they can they sending our love from the <laughs> library. <laughs> so they have until Valentine's Day, but we'll also be putting out our our 2024 challenge, which is going to be. There's some things that are a little different that we're excited about. Mm -hmm. And then hopefully uh, get some prizes and winners. What'd you say? What did I? You said, like you said, hopefully. <laughs> no, no, no. Hopefully yours. Um, we papally. Um, anyway, now I lost my train of thought. Anyway, so we'll be getting yeah, that. Yeah, Malcolm X's dad was murdered and his mom was institutionalized. And that's why he had to go. Yeah, that guy had a crazy life. I mean, yeah. Um, it's all coming back to me. So we'll have the 2024 s challenge up soon for a little special sneak peek. Have we made the decision on who we're committing to? Because we're starting in February. We're not. We're skipping January for 2024, right? That is correct. So who is our 2024 February author? So actually, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to mix in a few episodes of a sort of book club roundup. All of us who are sort of regularly on the show, myself, Becky, Jacob, and um, Joanne, are all in different book clubs. And so we're just going to have like a reader's conversation about all of the books that we've been working with in that period. So we'll do a few less authors. That would leave us with eight, I think, authors, if I did my math right. There's the, the list is not finalized. I'm really looking forward to doing uh, Kate DiCamillo. That's one of the authors. You're, you're pushing for Kate DiCamillo. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've been collectively very excited about the idea of doing Stephen Graham Jones. Oh, yes. Right. Yes. Oh, Joe was talking about um, Emily Henry, the romance writer. Yeah. Um, and I think we haven't done this in a few years, but we had for a number of years done like a Stephen King reread episode and i think we're gonna do that again this year in october in october and i think i'm gonna see if we can do misery people love us just like speaking so confidently about this program <laughs> speculating wildly on what we might do what will i do? oh what's his name uh you know checks notes it'll be great it'll be great fix it in post thank you to everybody though who's been participating because i know if you go on beanstack uh, we see there's so many people, and we've been hearing from you guys about when the 2024 challenge will come out. <laughs> so it's it's great that, that this is reaching people. Shout out to the person at the Solstice Walk who asked Austin if he was on the voice on the library podcast. One of the voices, <laughs> yeah. The voice. I the recognize voice. you. The voice of the library. That's what's coming up in the future. Yeah. Exciting. What are your goals for 2024? Oh, God. Like around reading? Anything. Oh, no. Well, I'll tell you, I feel like despite also continuing to read quite a bit, I felt a little bit like I've been in a reading slump, like since, I don't know, March 2020. <laughs> and in the last month or so, I feel like this is, is gone. Like it's finally gone. Like, there were times where I'd, you know, I'd like, oh, this book I read is so good. I'd get excited and stuff again. But then I I couldn't, I feel like right now I'm in a, such a good reading place where I can read a book and really enjoy it and set it down and then, like, start a new book and, like, 20 minutes later. And I've read so many books this month. I'm so into reading right now. And it makes me so happy. So I'm really excited about, like, reading a lot this year. I'm on the Evergreen Committee and we are reading for finalists for the 2025 award right now. And so I have until like March 5th or something to read through this long list. And so I, I don't know. I'm going to do that. I'm excited about that. I'm excited for some big library events that we have coming up. Uh, Long Con and the Columbia River Author Festival. And Dogman Party. Dogman Party. Austin and I are going on like a big trip. So I got like a lot of stuff I'm excited about this year. What about you, Jacob? 
my goal for this year is to be nicer to myself. Oh, that's Aww. great. Oh, that's good. Which includes like not taking on so many extra responsibilities in my life. So I have more time to spend with the people I love Aww. and doing things that I've wanted to do. Yeah. And so that's going to include some creative pursuits. I might be doing my own podcast. That's right. I'm doing some journaling. It's going to be great. Trying to really get back into the creative spirit. What about you, Austin? What do you aspire to? <laughs> you know, I've heard that question before. <laughs> it was a reference. It was a reference, it's and an I caught in, it. It's an inside joke. It's an inside it joke. Um, <laughs> oh, man. I have a lot. I always have a lot varying levels of personal to share on the podcast, but definitely reading more and balancing. I think I'm in a pretty good spot but you know, balancing the work reading which I enjoy and I love that it, it gets me to read all of these things that I otherwise maybe wouldn't make time for and my extracurricular reading and uh, make some time for, for writing and reflection. You had your cards goal. Oh, yes. Um, I like cards and greeting cards, as you might say. And I really like to collect cards and send them to people, but I wanted to be more on top of things. So I got a, a like a planner just for all the occasions every week that I want to send out cards for. It's a trick I picked up from a woman in her 80s. And I have a little like greenhouse full of cards corresponding with people, kind of echoing what Jacob said. I, I want to do the work of maintaining relationships more and, and I want to en entertain more. I want to, you know, see people more, especially, you know, we're still kind of in the aftermath of COVID and, and a lot of disruption to you know seeing people and so i remember and i know like case counts counts are really high right now and i don't want to be like COVID's over but i remember early in the pandemic someone saying somewhere that pandemics last four years <gasps> yay we're here <laughs> and i feel like we're almost there <laughs> i also um i also got married this year and i'm i'm hoping to keep that keep that going <laughs> that's great that's strong great. start so far yeah three months we're really loose now what else do you guys want to talk about okay so i've got a, i've got one last question okay so we're at the end of the challenge uh -huh. what is one book or author that you would recommend that didn't make it into our challenge for this year and probably isn't going to be in the one for next year okay that was considered and didn't make it or just somebody no, just we wish we had thought of didn't or make it okay that you want our listeners Oh. At least consider. An author to consider. An author to uh, consider. Well, I don't want to say that we'd never do somebody. Let's just, he's asking for a book recommendation. <laughs> we do this that's all really, day long. That's really what I'm asking. It's the job. <laughs> it's the job. We can do it. I just read a book called Naked by Fancy Feast. That's a burlesque name. Um, and it's fantastic. Really good essays on the world of the wild and weird world of burlesque performances and sex work and you know body size and all kinds of things like that really good book of essays you know some books essays you know you'll have some slack ones in there you know your interest level of no you're just it's a page turner so i guess my answer would probably be like I don't think we would ever do like self-help books on the podcast. Oh, yeah. But there are some that I have mostly read that I would recommend. So there's a book called The 4,000 Weeks. Oh, 4,000 Weeks. There's a book called 4,000 Weeks, and it's it's called like Time Management for Mortals. It's kind of a philosophy book but it's also. It's kind of like more of a philosophy book about, you know, what you do with your time as a human being yeah. on Earth. How to think about time. And how to think about your time and like both on the daily and you know at work and at home and what you spend your time on and and not and I think one of the biggest things I've gotten for that is that if there's something that you need to do or want to do you should always find a way to prioritize it at some point because otherwise you will never ever do it and then like we were at Jimmy John's earlier and there was a sign that was like it said do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. And eventually you'll be able to do what you want to do when you want to do it. And I was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> you should do what you need to do 
And sometimes what you want to do should just be stuck in the middle of all that need to do stuff because otherwise you'll never get to do the stuff you want to do. And I can't remember if I like where I read this, but Uh like I recently read something that was like your brain works well if you split up doing like important tasks Mm -hmm. and doing like 20 minutes of something like studying or like actual work and then you take like a five minute break Mm -hmm. or you work for like a half an hour and you take a 10 minute break or something like that it's it's your really short spurts and then you like you really hyper focus on what you need to do for a period of time and then you give yourself a break yeah and one of the examples in the book he gave was about like inbox zero and he's like well if i want to spend the rest of my life answering emails instead of like doing any work then i would work at inbox zero but sometimes i just need to like not check my email or not respond to an email so that i'm doing other stuff i'm a long way from inbox zero (laughs) my personal email (laughs) i think it has like ten thousand unread oh yeah same god that stresses me out i'm like your little icon says ten thousand keeps me humble I just don't delete my emails. That's my that's my toxic trait. Some people love it. It's like you know how some people like to like I don't know pick at loose skin or whatever. I it, I feel like it's the same impulse. People just love to sit there and delete emails. Yeah. Well, I don't love to sit, but sometimes you're like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "I'm deleting emails." And you have a blissful look on your face. Yeah. What I would like is someone to invent. Listen, listeners, do this thing for me. What I call self destruction, self destructive emails. So if I get an ad from like Joanne Fabric and it's like this sale ends tomorrow, when the sale is over, I want that email to have automatically deleted itself from my inbox. You you don't want the email to self-destruct your computer. No. That'd be like malware or no. something. Okay. Like an, uh, an email that auto-deletes itself when yeah. it's no longer relevant. Yeah. Especially emails about sales. It would definitely be an opt-in feature, but yeah, I think that you'd have to I think that'd be very useful. Yeah. It seems like something someone could invent. I'm giving it to you, world, to invent. I have no idea how it would be done, but I think it could be done. The other self-help book that I'm currently reading and would recommend is called How to Keep House While Drowning. And it's a book about housekeeping for people who are either, like, neurodivergent or dealing with, like, hard times or, like, crazy times. So it talks about, like, people with ADHD or people who are really busy at parents or people who have, like, chronic pain. And it's just, like, super gentle, uh, helpful advice and anti-shaming about your housekeeping and your abilities and your priorities and stuff. So those are the two books I recommend right now. Okay, we're in a little break. What were you, were you, like, waving your hand at me for, like, were you telling me to come in? No, I was telling Austin to take the microphone. Telling me to get out. Okay. Okay. (sighs) (laughs) No. (laughs) So Jacob, what about you? So the book that I read in 2023 that most excited me is called Corico: A Magical Year. Oh right, that's a game, right? And it's my game. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it is in book form, and it's very fun. And I don't remember if I said the author. It's by Jack Harrison. And he has done quite a few different journaling RPGs. And so how it works is you're playing a witch who is traveling away from her hometown. And she's going to a magical place called Koriko. And you spend a year there. And so the game is told in six volumes or six chapters. And it details the life of your witch and like the different people and experiences that she has in Koriko. And then at the end, you make the decision whether you want to stay, whether you want to go home or do something else and it utilizes a mechanic of like card drawing so there's tarot influence in it as well as like playing cards and then you stack dice as part of the other thing so if you if you try to stack dice and your tower falls over you fail at what you've tried to do and you have to write in your journal about what happened so it's like a creative writing exercise Mm -hmm. and a way to practice like journaling and just practice your you know stretch your creative muscles oh that sounds really cool Nice. Do you write inside of the book? No, you have to bring your own journal. Oh, okay. So yeah. But it's something like then we could get it for writers and not writing inside a book. Yeah, people could get it. Cool. Yeah. It checks out in a – the actual form of it is like it's sold in a in a box, mm-hmm. so it might be like a library of things. Yeah. Check out. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. 
All right. Well, we should probably let these good people go. Yeah. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and thanks, you guys. Yeah, thank you. Um, Best of luck to you in 2024. Yeah. yeah, cheers. Here's cheers to more. Your shelf? Or mine. Or mine. Hi, Becky. I'm Austin. <laughs> I'm Austin. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Austin. And I'm Jacob. Bye. Bye-bye. So long. Support for Your Shelf or Mine comes from the friends of the Longview Public Library, the Longview Library Foundation, and listeners like you. Your Shelf or Mine jingle is written and performed by Megan McKeldery from A Song for You. Find Megan online at ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery. That's M-E-A-G-H-A-N-M-C-E-L-D-E-R-R-Y. ReverbNation.com slash Megan McKeldery.